we're going to take a little course, a little deviation a little bit because it is the first Sunday of the new year and we are going to talk about baptism, but we're going to talk about a different element about baptism. So I want you to stand with me and let's talk about the one baptism, identifying with Christ's death and his resurrection. That's what baptism is. It is identifying with the death and the life of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And describe for us in this beautiful passage in Ephesians chapter 4, one that we've been studying for quite a few Sundays now, we come to this aspect about the oneness that we have as the body of Christ, the true church of Jesus Christ, in the area of baptism. And so he takes baptism very seriously here, and he says in the text, in Ephesians 4, beginning with verse 4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray, and then we're going to see what the Spirit has to say to us today through the Word of God. God, we love you and we thank you for sometimes taking our plans and changing them. Maybe some other time I'll be able to use that message that uh, I had already prepared. If not, I'll put it on the back burner and use it another time. And so we're just going to dive in today and to see and to hear from you. That's really what we want to do. Um, we don't come really prepared to speak what we want to speak or to hear what we want to hear. And just open a text and to read from it and to study it is not really the purpose and intent why we're here. We're here for you and your spirit to speak to your word to the needs of our hearts. So that we, through that revelation, can gain the wisdom, the application that we need, to be able to leave this place empowered by that insight, by the, by the word of your spirit, the word of truth, and then enabling us then to live out the lives that you've called us to live in Christ. To be quite honest with you, I am perplexed because of the complexities of this amazing thing that we enjoy through faith in Jesus. There's more information, there's more understanding, there's more wisdom to be gained than we could ever have in a lifetime. And I am always perplexed at the truths that are constantly being revealed through this incredible mystery that we call our salvation. It's not a mystery because it's not known to us, but it's known to us, but yet there are truths that are here that may not be fully known. And I pray that as we unpack the truths of this passage, that would use them to speak to our hearts and that you, you would use this time to equip us in the fullness of all that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we ask this. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Have you ever seen anybody that has tattoos? There's a fad today called tattoos, and everybody's having one and getting one. And I have been tempted a time or two, and I have tempted Patty a time or two as we have been driving by and we see a tattoo shop, and let's, I say, let's stop and get a tattoo. And she always says, no, thank you. I can remember arguing with my sons about this whole thing called tattoos. Uh, it is an epidemic today. Everybody is getting tattoos. Uh, there are some who got them when they were younger, in their younger years, and uh, some of the tattoos they have, they have realized they are permanent, and that ink mark does not come off, and so they seek to do everything they can to hide them. How many of you knew that David Harper had a tattoo? Anybody know that? He, had a, he has, it's a very large one. So the next time you see him, you say, hey, the pastor talked to me after you left, and you have, a, I do not 
actually have one. I have had one of those kind that my children get you lick and you put on your hand. You know what I'm talking about? But those don't last very long. Uh, I'm not sure that's not an incentive for kids to grow up later on and they want tattoos as well. But uh, there are a few people in our church who have tattoos. And Donnie is one that has tattoos. Donnie, you here today? You are here? Uh, Donnie has some tattoos, and we got to talking about that when we combined the services, and and uh, you know, and and they're 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 on his. You can't help but not see him, and some are pretty incredible. And uh, and uh, so I said, well, I said, how are you going to do when you're shaking hands with the older ladies as you're greeting them in the church when we combine the services? And he said, Pastor, you'd be surprised how many older people have tattoos. It's not just a young person thing, and some of you guys who are in your older years got some in your rebellious years, and you would be, I'm not going to mention any names, so don't worry about it. I was in the shop the other in the store the other day, get buying some groceries, and there was a lady who had a tattoo, and it's a beautiful tattoo of Jesus all the way up and down her arm, beautiful long hair and the crown and all that. And I asked her, I said, when did you get that? She said, I got that a couple of years ago. I said, why did you get that particular tattoo? She said, well, first of all, I like the tattoo. It was a beautiful tattoo, but it reminds me that I belong to Christ. And I thought, well, I don't need a tattoo to be able to do that. <laughs> But I'm glad she has that tattoo there for the right reason. Now, the reason I mention tattoos is because I think what baptism is, is that baptism is a mark of a disciple. It is a definitive mark that disciples must possess in order to be followers of Christ. It's not a must in that we must possess the mark of baptism in order to be saved because it is not in addition to salvation, nor is it complementary of salvation, but it is, in fact, a mark of a true disciple because Jesus himself was baptized, then we too follow in the footsteps of the example of Christ, and then we, after conversion then, agree to be baptized. And when we are baptized, it is a mark, it is a sign, it is symbolic to the world that from this moment on, because we have been washed by the blood of the Lamb that we sang about, we can now sort of work that out outwardly to testify as a testimony to the world that we are now Christ followers. That's what baptism is. It's an identification with the, with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's all it is. And as you take a look at this passage, and there was, I was in a quite of a conundrum, so to speak, as to trying to figure out how I was going to develop a whole message on this, and then I developed a whole message about baptism. And uh, so I was going to sort of do a, a first Sunday series on baptism as we begin the new year about what baptism is. And I think the reason why that is probably an important topic, an important subject today, is because there are a lot of churches, I think, that are minimizing the ordinance of baptism. They are degrading it to something that I think Christ never intended for baptism to be in the church. It was a watermark by which Christians professed their faith, and it was a big deal in New Testament times. It was a coming out, so to speak, of those who would declare and profess their faith in very difficult times where there was heavy persecution in the church among those who outwardly professed their faith in Christ. And it was not done secretly in the confines of, of some small spaces for a few people to watch. It was done in public, in rivers, and in, in outside bathing places so that the world could see of their testimony of their commitment to follow Christ. It was a big deal. It was a big statement. 
in which believers at that point, after having professed their faith in Christ, would outwardly make their declaration to the world that we are now Christ followers. And many churches today have degraded baptism to something where there's so much laughter and so much fun and conundrum and all other kinds of things that it has ceased being, I think, what the New Testament intended it to be when he gave that ordinance, when Jesus did, to his disciples and to the church. Uh, Recently, there was a church who had a a mass baptism where people who were not ordained ministers uh, would then be invited to baptize people in their family, and uh, someone who believed in Christ, who themselves had been baptized, would then be commissioned by the church, I guess, to baptize those in their family. And I was told that by some who visited and who participated at least to watch that, that there was so much laughter and so much commotion going on that it did not seem as respectful and as reverent as it should. And I'm here to say that I think that if we treat baptism any differently than we treat the Lord's Supper, then we degrade the ordinance that Christ gave the church. It's a reverent thing. It's to be done respectfully. And so I think that there are valued insights into the Bible that help us understand what baptism is all about. And I'm saddened today that this is the first day of the year. We've had multiple baptisms in the last several Sundays. Isn't it be great to have that here? And today is one of the first Sundays we've not had a baptism in quite some time. But it is an ordinance, and it's to be done respectfully and reverently. It's not to be done flippantly or casually and with laughter. And, and, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an intent here that I think that, that the church today, in its attempt to be, I don't know why they're trying to do this, but they're making baptism something that I believe is not reverent and not respectful of the intent for which Christ gave it. And so as you take a look at this text and the, the aspect of one baptism, we already know that the one word has been used over and over and over again. It's exclusive. There's one baptism. There are not multiple baptisms that unite the church, but there is one baptism. Now, we could talk about the one baptism as we would have done and I've been able to do what I wanted to do. We would have talked about the one meaning of the word baptism, which simply means to dip under. There's not another word that can be defined any other way, but the meaning of the word baptism is baptizo. It means to completely immerse and to completely come out of the water. That's what the word itself means. So that's what it means. There's not only one meaning, but we also learn that there is one mandate. Where Jesus in Matthew chapter 28, as he was ascending to the Father, he gave his disciples the commandment to do what? To go and baptize. We're to make converts, and those converts then are to be baptized into the body, into the fellowship, and into the church. And that I think that baptism is a requirement to be a part of the body of Christ, to be a part of the church. We could talk about the one method of baptism, that is fully immersed and fully come out of the water. Jesus came out of the water when he was baptized by John the Baptist. There's not a baptism in the New Testament where there's sprinkling. It is fully immersed and fully coming out. And so how anyone justifies this whole concept of baptism in the area of sprinkling, I don't get it because the Bible talks about being fully immersed and fully coming out of the water. It is all or nothing, I think, is the mode or the means or the method of baptism. The moment of baptism is post-conversion. Uh, you are to be baptized immediately following your conversion. And it doesn't mean that you have to be baptized like the Church of Christ in order to, 
to, to gain or to earn to merit your salvation, but it's done as a declaration of your faith. Baptism is, as I said earlier, a testimony, and it is something that then you testify to the world of what has already taken place inside of your heart. You have been washed by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. He has infused in you the newness of the life of Jesus, and you have been baptized in the Spirit. And that baptism now is then exercised outwardly that reveals and reflects exactly that. We then talk about the mark of baptism, and the mark is simply an identification with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. If you've watched a baptism at all, you notice that they are, first, they are standing up, or in this case, sitting down, and uh, then they're, they're, they're fully vertical, and then the minister then immerses them into the water, and then he brings them out again. Buddy with me? They were, this is, this is how they were before they came to faith in Christ. They then died with Christ. And upon their death in Christ, they were then raised to then walk in the power or the newness of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. That is the symbolism of coming down and coming out. It is an identification with what Christ has done. There are two passages that the same Holy Spirit through the same writer gives us in a passage in Romans chapter 6. Notice what God says through the penmanship of Paul by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been unified with him in a death like his, we shall certainly, that is, that is a certainty that has affirmation in it and all the power of the Lord in it, be unified with him in a resurrection like his. Again, in Colossians chapter 2, another book to the Colossian church, verse 12, having been Buried with him in baptism, Paul writes, to the inspiration of the Spirit, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. It is symbolic of what, experience, what we have experienced through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit of God when we were saved. Baptism is not in addition to salvation. It does not necessitate your salvation, but it is an identification with the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. That's what it's about. And there are a lot of denominations and other churches that want to make it a whole lot more than that. In this text, I have found that the commentators primarily are in a, in a debate as to what Paul meant here through inspiration of the Spirit about one baptism. Some want to then help us understand that the word one baptism talks about the baptism of the Holy Spirit when a person is converted to faith in Christ. That is the baptism that we have. The moment you place your faith and trust in Christ, we're baptized with the Holy Spirit. He, he builds a permanent dwelling place in our hearts, and there he resides forever. That is, I don't think, the context of what God is saying through uh, the penmanship of the Apostle Paul. I think there's an argument for that, and I can understand why some would want to think that that's what he's saying here, but I think he's not saying that. I think he's talking about, if you look at the framework of the text, he talks about one Lord, one faith, and then one baptism. So I think he's sort of alluding to the fact that after we have been the regenerating work of the Spirit has had its effect on our lives. It is then at that moment then that we then exercise the testimony in identifying with the life, the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, having said that, there's not another time in the book of Ephesians where he mentions baptism. 
I don't know if you noticed or not, but the last couple of times we've been studying one body, one faith, you know, one Lord, there are other areas in the Bible that he mentions those subjects, and we've been identifying what the Holy Spirit is trying to convey to us through the penmanship of the Apostle Paul by looking at all the diverse areas that he mentions the Lord or faith or hope throughout the book of Ephesians, sort of making a, a systematic study of what the Holy Spirit may be saying here. He doesn't use the word baptism at any other place in the the letter to the Ephesian church. And so uh, after I'd gotten all my study ready and all my outline and all that, I just began to read through the book of Ephesians. And uh, it's, it's a powerful book. I wish I had it memorized. Uh, but my brain leaks, probably like yours, and it uh, goes out as quick as it goes in. But uh, um, as I was reading it, I found two verses that while the, the word baptism isn't used, there's some interesting insights about this whole identification that we have in Christ. Now, whether he's alluding to baptism or not, it's interesting that there are two aspects in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 where God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is leading the Apostle Paul to write about what Christ has done and how we can identify with the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And so I began to sort of just read through that and to read through some commentaries, you know, over the holidays and uh, over this last week. And, and, and so this is where we're going to go real quick. Now, there's some long passages, and I don't have time to dive into them like I like to, so we're going to just kind of skim the surface. So I want you to take a look at Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 15. I want us to look at God's immeasurable power. God's immeasurable power. Now, we're going to see that word two times in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2. I want you to write down the definition of immeasurable. This is what I have concluded. It is, it, or it means to attain a degree, to attain a degree that extraordinary, that's extraordinary, that exceeds a point of a scale of can't even read my own writing. Extent. Did you get it? To attain a degree, that extraordinary degree, that exceeds a point on a scale of extent. In other words, it speaks of power that is beyond measure. It speaks of limitless power. It, it speaks of God being limitless. That God has no limits to his nature or to his character. God is an infinite being. And we're going to talk about him next week, about the, 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 the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and, and the Trinity, and, and some of those aspects. But, but God in his character and his nature, he is unlimited in all of his resources. Imagine that. Unlimited. And the word immeasurable that is used in both of these passages indicates that it is present active. This is huge. It is an immeasurable power and provision that is present active. It's not something that he has only done in the past, but it's something that he is presently doing today for our behalf. Now, that's huge. Because it would be one thing to talk about his limitless power and provisions of the past and, and all that he's done for us. That'd be great, and we could celebrate that. But that unlimited, unmeasurable, unlimiting power and provision is for us presently today as we are seeking to live out this life for Christ. It's not just a past thing. It is a present reality. 
It is something that we can tap into and have access today. So if you need the unlimited, unmeasurable power and provisions of God in and of, we're just talking about salvation, not just in the past, but we need them today. It's a present reality. And so we can simply tap into that and have available to us all the power and all the provisions of God today. Now, granted, it's also available to us in the future, but it's for us today. Now, let's talk about the immeasurable power of God. Ephesians chapter 1, let's take a look at what Paul says through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. We've seen this passage several times. He's talking about uh, this, this incessant need that he has to give praise uh, to the church. You know, I think there are times when we need to sort of pat people on the back and we need to acknowledge their faith. That, that's, that's a huge thing. And if you have a child, I think there are times that you need to, you know, just go, yay. You know, I mean, little Cannon Knox Boswell, he's uh, like 18 months and he does stuff and now he expects everyone to go yay at everything he does, you know. And uh, if he doesn't get it, he kind of gives you that pouty look. And so you've got to acknowledge everything he does. And he, he looks for that and yearns for that. And I think there's something about us, even as adults, that as we are seeking to live out a faithful life for Christ, that we want someone to acknowledge that we're living faithful to the Lord. And while people around us may not acknowledge that, God sees every act of faithfulness, and he is consistently, constantly applauding you for being faithful to the Lord, even when other people don't recognize it and applaud you for it. Because in the end, isn't he the only one that we should really seek the applause of? We have an audience of one, and his name is God. So God is applauding the penmanship of the Apostle Paul, their faithfulness. Notice his prayer in verse 16. I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers. He's praying for the people in Ephesus. Uh, they're under a heavy attack. Uh, they're in a hostile environment. This is not a, a place that, that would be for wimpy Christians who can live out a social Christian life and just kind of be casually, uh, you know, people of the faith. This, this, is, this is for the strong. If you profess faith in Christ, there are going to be persecutions and hardships. You're going to have loss, not, so, not only loss of family members, but maybe loss of income and a loss of jobs, not because of the economy, but because of your faith and your stance for Christ. And so Paul was consistently and constantly praying for them, remembering them in their prayers. And I think we should, should take a sort of a, a little lead here from the Apostle Paul, and we ought to pray for one another. I've been praying for Mel ever since I heard about what he's going to be going through next week. And before we end, Mel, I want you to come up, if you don't mind, and we're going to lay hands on you and pray. He's been diagnosed with uh, uh, some things and uh, uh, pretty tough, and he's going to have to go to MD, MD Anderson next week. Uh, April is uh, now trying to figure out what your new title is. April, I can't remember what it is, but she's no longer kind of just an assistant. She's now on staff. We've given her a whole lot more responsibility. Well, actually, she already had responsibility for that. We're just acknowledging that. But uh, uh, since David left, she's being elevated to uh, a different oversight-type position. And, uh, but they're going to be leaving tomorrow for MD Anderson, maybe. Still up for grabs. So uh, we want to pray for you. And we need to pray for each other, not just for physical things, but for spiritual battles that are going on, for relationships, for faith and for faithfulness in each other. There's, there's, there's value, grandparents, in praying for your children and grandchildren every day. 
I was with my mom's house on one day this week, and my mom mentions by name every one of her children and grandchildren. And I can honestly say by the time she got through, I was saying, come on, mom, let's eat, you know? Even though she mentioned my name and my children's name and my grandchildren's name, I mean, she's got a long list. Uh, but they pray for our, their children and grandchildren at every meal. It can be a lengthy prayer, but it's a valuable prayer. So pray. And he did pray. What did he pray for? Well, the contents of his prayer. Notice verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? There he's praying. And the context basically what he's saying is, I'm, I'm praying for you to be able to, to see this, this incredible gift in Jesus, to finally understand and to see and to grasp the contents of all that is ours in Christ. That is a, a huge prayer because, as I mentioned earlier, there are so many so many things that are ours through Jesus that it would take a lifetime for us to exhaust and study to learn all that's available to us through Jesus. Seriously. And he's praying, guys, you're, you need to see not just who Jesus is and what he's done on the cross, but see all of the beautiful benefits and the blessings that are yours because of what he's done and he continues to do presently in your life so that you can understand them, not only so that you'll understand them, it's not only just for insight, but it's for application because the application of knowledge is huge because how do I live it out in my faith? Because he desires them to not only know the truth, but to live it out in their day-to-day -day life. Christianity is not just some aspect about theological truths that kind of, you know, go around in your head. There are theological truths that should transcend through a day-to-day -day life. They should impact how we live for Jesus. So to know a lot of things about Christ and not know how to apply them is not seeing them for the value that I think that God would have us to see them in. And so we need to understand this incredible truth. So he wants them to realize all of the provisions that, that they have in Christ. To really realize those, to, to just continue to kind of like a, kind of like a, you know, one of those little um, tangerines that we, we gave the kids during the holidays. You know, you just keep peeling it out until all of a sudden you get down to the very core of what is there. We need to keep peeling away the things that are mystery to us. Not mystery in that they're unknown to us, but just mysteries in that in the unknown to us in a sense that they're mysterious, that we'll never know them, but to continue to peel from them so that those mysteries can be known to us so that we can then apply them into day-to-day -day life. But notice then what he says in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, that's a huge statement. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ, he worked this immeasurable greatness and this immeasurable power to those who believe when he worked it in Christ and through Christ. For when he raised Christ from the dead, he then seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name, that is the name, that will ever be named in all of history. You know, the names continue to go. Uh, hero today, zero tomorrow, because new heroes come up, and he's saying here that his name above is a, not only 
above every name then, but every name that will continue to, to, get, to be brought up. He'll continue to be above every name from now on throughout all of eternity, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. <laughs> Man, I wish we had time to camp out there for several months, but we don't. But it says that the same power that worked in Christ, okay, now get it, the same power that worked in Christ, where this sinless God took upon sin and died on a cross for sins that he didn't commit, so that after he literally, physically died, I mean, he was dead, clinically dead, the power of God, the immeasurable power of God raised Jesus from the dead. Not only raised him from the dead, but raised him up and seated him in the heavenly places and gave him all power and all authority. That is our Jesus. That is our Savior. And that same power that did that for him is the same power that's at work presently in us. That's incredible. We've got a big rock out here, right? Big rock. Could you move that by yourself? Could you? Now, don't anybody go out there and try. You're going to get a hernia if you do, okay? No matter how much thought you put into it, no matter how much leverage you try to get. Now, barring that you don't get any machines, all right, Mike, can't do that. You cannot move it in your own power. But the immeasurable power of God can take the weight of our sin that doomed us and damned us and we were dead because of that sin. The same power that worked in Jesus works in us. And so the question that I have for us is then why don't we rest in that power? Why aren't we tapping into it? I want to encourage you to, to take some time this week and to look at that text and do some background information on it and do some study in it and do some application of it. Just don't do it for knowledge up here, but do it for some application and see how I think this passage tells us that we need to rest in his power. That same power that was at work in raising Christ from the dead is the, in full operation in your life now. So the question is, why are we powerless? In other words, why are we wimpy? Why are we defeated? Why do we get discouraged? Why do we yield to temptation? If we have that power presently available today. Now, let's look at the God's immeasurable provision. Not only we saw his power in this incredible resurrection of Jesus and the power that's available to us, it looks at the provision in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 10. Notice Paul is, is writing through inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the Ephesian church, and he's writing to them these words. Notice, beginning with verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sin. What were they? Dead. You ever been around a dead, dead body? I don't want to be disrespectful if you have. But I have, in, in, in 36 years of ministry, I've been around a lot of people who were dead. 
physically, clinically pronounced dead. They don't move. They have no life. They can't say anything. They can't do anything about their condition. They're lifeless. They are dead. They are powerless. We were powerless. We were helpless. We were hopeless because of our condition called sin. We were dead before we came to faith in Christ. Notice this. You were dead. You, before you came to faith in Christ, before the power of God came upon you and resurrected you from your dead state, you were completely and totally spiritually dead. Not only were you dead, notice you were also disobedient. Verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of what? Disobedience. You didn't give a flip about what God cared about. You didn't love the things that God loved. You wouldn't do the things. You were only interested in yourself. You were the center of your own universe. And everything revolved around you. And everything was for you. One thing I've learned about an 18-year-old, 18-month-old is that the sun rises and the sun sets for them. Right? And then they have to grow up and they have to grow out of that. Why is that? That's not reality. Because children that don't grow up out of that are going to be really hard adults to live with. Amen? And so they were disobedient. We were disobedient. We were dead. We were disobedient. Notice that we were doomed. We were depraved. Let's look at the depraved, the depravity. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. You lived according to the passion of your flesh. Your flesh craved and desired things that went against the spirit, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. You did whatever you, whatever felt good, you did it. There were no constraints. There were no lines drawn. There were no boundaries. There were no limitations to your depravity and how you lived that out. You were depraved. But notice the damnation or the doom. He says, notice, and were by nature children of what? Of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. We were, we were not desiring God. We were doomed. That was our state before we came to faith in Christ. But notice the redemptive plan of God beginning with verse 4. But God being what? <laughs> he being what? Being rich in mercy. He was rich in mercy. This word rich is a phenomenal word. It means he has more than enough to cover any sin you have ever committed. He has an abounding richness about him. How would you like to have more money than you could ever spend in a lifetime? Would you like that? Anybody not like that here? Anybody? We're going to, you know, we're going to come talk to you after service. How much mercy do we have? God is so rich in mercy that he gives you more mercy than you can ever exhaust in a lifetime. What is mercy? That means he doesn't treat you like you deserve to be treated. What do you deserve to be, how do you deserve to be treated? You, you don't deserve the love and the forgiveness and the grace of God. You deserve condemnation. You deserve a life of self-centeredness and all of the consequences of that life. Misery. And yet he is rich in 
mercy. He doesn't treat us the way we deserve to be treated. Why? Why does he do that? Because of the great love with which he loved us. What's God's motive in this redemptive plan? Love. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one only Son, that whosoever believeth in him would not perish but have everlasting life. That is the motive that God has in giving us this richness in mercy, this overflowing mercy that we could never exhaust. It's solely and totally because he loves you. Why does he love you? I don't have a clue. Seriously. We don't deserve this love. There's no reason for him to love us. We were depraved and dead and disobedient, and doomed, hopeless, helpless, and yet he loved us anyway. He loved us before we loved him. He loved us even when we hated him. Out of love. Notice then the means by which we're saved in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us, what, alive together in Christ. Notice he made us alive. That was our past. We were dead, right? Remember? We were dead, but now we're alive. You were dead. You were doomed. You were damned. You, you were loveless and lifeless. You were destined to a Christless life and a Christless eternity. And yet, because of his love, he reached down in the pit of hell and he redeemed you unto himself and he breathed new life into you and he raised you with Christ. To de he made a life, how? Together with who? Together with who? What does it say? Together with who? With Christ. You were raised together with Christ. When Christ rose, when you put your faith in him, you rose. By grace you have been saved. Grace is unmerited favor. Nothing you can bring to the equation. We've talked about that already. It's solely by grace. God gave you what you did not rightfully deserve. If you had gotten what you deserved, where would you be today? You don't sit there and then, well, wait a minute, I'm a pretty good person. No, you're not. Oh, you don't know me, Pastor. I know what the Bible says about you. You're no good. There is none good, no, not one. You don't bring any goodness at all. Because if you did, you could boast. And it's all by grace. Notice verse 6, and raised us up with him. Notice the power. He raised us up. He raised us up with who? With him? Who's him? Christ. In the heavenly places in Christ. That's an incredible, incredible, beautiful statement about that he seated us in a new position now. What is our position? It's victory. It's victory. You're not helpless anymore. You're not hopeless anymore. We have the victory of Jesus applied to us and the authority that he had when he was raised from the dead by the power of this incredible power of God, when God in his infinite power raised Christ from the dead, he defeated Satan and sin and death. And now through faith in Christ, we too with him have been seated in that victory. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Where is it? Where is the sting of death now? It's no longer a reality for us. 
We don't have to be afraid of death, Mel. It's no big deal. It's easy for me to say. But we should all get there. Because we're already died with him. But when we died with him, we rose with him. And we reign and we rule with him. And we're seated with him in the heavenlies. Satan can't overcome us. Satan can't defeat us. Sin can no longer control us. Death can't keep us in the grave. We have a resurrection that's come, that's coming through faith in Christ. And I think that's what we talk about. But notice now he says in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through him, through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one could boast. I want you to circle underline that word he might show underline or circle the word show that's an incredible incredible thing he might show what what does that mean he might show the measurable riches of his grace and the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus that means he wants to put you on display he wants to put you on display now that you're saved and you've been raised with Christ he's putting you on display for the whole world to see what, what does he want the world to see? That you were once dead, you've been raised with Christ, and you're standing in victory, but he wants you to notice to show the immeasurable riches of what? Of his grace. When you testify about what Christ has done, make sure that they understand that it's all by grace. Hey, I want you to know that as your pastor, I stand in the grace of God because if I stood in any goodness of my own, I'd be dead. I am on display here, and you're on display. Those of us who have placed our faith and trust in Christ, we are a display of the incredible mercy and the grace and the love of God. And when they look at us, they go, oh, how in the world did that person get saved, man? Look at them. Man, I don't know about them, man. And you look at them and say, hey, you know what? Wasn't for the mercy and the love and the grace of God? Sometimes, I'm going to say this kindly, but I think sometimes we... We fall short of the standard of God, and, uh, and we sin. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes we all sin, and, and sometimes we sin privately so that nobody knows about it, but sometimes we sin so that nobody, so that, so that everybody knows. <laughs> and then what happens? Um, do you see what David did? Um... Um, you see what David did? I'm picking on you, David. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, this David right here. David Hodge. It's pretty safe. He's a banker. He's supposed to be trustworthy and all those things. But anyway. And, and we have a tendency to throw stones and throw rocks. Because, you know, we haven't done what David did. Baloney. Baloney. And when we see David sinning, you know, we ought to say, you know what? He's an incredible display of the mercy and the grace and the love of God. Because wasn't it for that, he'd be dead, doomed, and defeated. And then we need to look in the mirror and we need to say, hey, you know what? Wasn't it for his love, his mercy, and his grace? I'd be dead, doomed, and defeated. And that would create a different dynamic in a church, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? If we all looked at ourselves as a display of the love, of the mercy, and the grace of God? 
I, I'm just on display. I know about you, when I was a kid, I had several trophies, you know, that I got when I was in high school and, and a few when I got in college, and I had them all neatly, and I had them on display, and so I want everybody to see, you know, my trophies and my accomplishments, and, and you know what? I, I don't have any of my own to bring the equation of salvation, but what I am is I am God's trophy. You are God's trophy, and we are on display, and when people look at us, they should see the love, the mercy, and the grace of Jesus. Not some cocky, self-righteous believer who thinks they've done it better than anyone else. For we are his workmanship, he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. There's an incredible purpose that God has in putting us on display because he has a plan that he wants to accomplish through us. He has a purpose that he wants to fulfill through us, and we are an extension of that purpose, which brings us finally, as I close, to Galatians 2.20. Now, it's interesting as we wrap this up at the beginning of the new year, John says in John 3.30, John says, he must increase and I must decrease. He must increase and I must decrease. The Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Death, life. You can't live until you die. And when we die with Christ, he raises us to new life, and we stand now in the victory that he has. Notice Galatians 2.20. Paul writes in another place, inspired by the same Holy Spirit, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. It is no longer I who live. Not I who live. But Christ who lives in me. Who lives in him? Christ. And the life I now live in the flesh, in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I think the whole context as we close is I need to receive the life that Christ died to give me. There's a receptivity that I need to acknowledge. Christ died and was raised from the dead so that we too, through faith in him, could be buried with him to be raised to walk in the power of his resurrection. And there is a receptivity that I need to have. There's also an aspect of rising to the level, to the degree that he has placed me in. And once now I now rise to that level, I then reign as a child of the king because Christ who raised me from the dead is reigning. So therefore, I reign with him. I'm not defeated. There is no temptation that can overtake me. For greater is he that is in me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we need to put on, I think, our priestly garments and we need to reign with Christ and reign as Christ because we, because of what Christ did, we too have the power that he has. And then I think we need to just continue to rest in his unfinished work because you're going to fall flat on your face from time to time. You need to recognize and realize that death, I think, to self and to the world and to the flesh is a daily activity. It's a daily activity. I don't know about you, but man, that little self keeps rising up in me and I just have to, you know, 
put you down last week, man. Come on. And he gets back up. He's a relentless little fella. Isn't he? How I hate him. But there are times how I love him. Because sometimes if I'm not careful, I can feed self. And I could feel feelings I shouldn't feel, think thoughts I shouldn't think, do things I know I should not do. And cheapen the power and the provision of an immeasurable, mighty God. So the question as we close is simply this. Am I ready to die in order to live? You can't live unless you die. Sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? But if you'll lay your life down as Christ was willing to lay his life down, he will raise you up and empower you, provide for you in ways measurable.